You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 48. I'm your host, Chris Sims, with my co-host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk to Abby Smith-Rumsey, author of When We Are No More, How Digital Memory is Shaping Our Future. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast. We've got uh, Chris Sims on the line. Chris, how's it going? Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, you know, regular co-host and all. So, um, and But we've, <laughs> <laughs> then we've got a semi-regular co-host as well, uh, Michael Ashley from Codify. How's it going, Michael? It's going great. All right. And now we've got our special guest, um, and I'm going to do just a little bit of an introduction here. Michael is, um, he's kind of my digital archival guru. He's who I go to for all this sorts of information, um, because that's how we're building the, the Codify software to kind of follow all these, um, these principles that we're going to talk about. And um, when we were at the SAAs in Orlando last year, Michael was reading this book, and he told me I should read the book. So I actually picked it up before we went to the SAAs and started reading it then. And, uh, and it was just, it was just amazing. It was, um, a lot of stuff that we talk about all the time, um, was in this book. So the book from Bloomsbury press is called when we are no more. Um, and let me see, there's a subtitle when we are no more, how digital memory is shaping our future. And it's by Abby Smith Rumsey, who we have on the line. Welcome Abby. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Good. Well, I'll just give a, a little bit of, um, a little bit of background on the book. Um, I just got a, a, a sentence I actually pulled out of a review and it says, um, you know, when we are no more explores human memory from prehistory to the present and sheds light on the grand challenge facing our world, the abundance of information and scarcity of human attention. There's obviously a lot more to that, but that's kind of something that, that stuck out to me um, as, as what this book is really about. So, Abby, why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself and, and maybe why you decided to write this book? Um, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here among archaeologists because it's not my field of specialty. I'm actually his an historian who's always grown up with textual and written resources. Um, and I'm humbled by the work that people in archaeology do, frankly, to get as much information out of the mute sources that they have. My concern that, that prompted this book was um, twofold. First, as an historian that practiced you know, medieval Russian history and did doctoral research in the 1980s in, when the Russia was still part of the Soviet Union. I'd come from a culture um, in America where openness to resources was taken for granted. And of course, in the Soviet Union and in other countries that consider all information state property, there is no such thing as a citizen asking a question innocently and expecting to be given access to the sources. And this was true even though my dissertation topic was in the 17th century. It was still viewed as a highly political subject, and I was not allowed access to documents. I had many experiences when I was denied access to documents that I knew, and I had a sense living in the Soviet Union that this is one of the ways in which power works, that people in fact deny um, access to their own to their citizens or subjects to their own past, or at least what we would call the evidence of the past, and instead provide a story about the past which accounts for the present. Mm -hmm. uh, my friends in the Soviet Union would say, um, in their utopian community, they never worried about the future because the future was all set. It was the past that kept changing. 
And of course, that's profoundly true. I think we're beginning to see a little bit of how that kind of mindset can come in in a culture in which information can be overwritten so easily as digital. So I started my historical career actually very aware of the fragility of the historical record and how powerful it is in getting people to understand who they are, where they are, where they came from, and more importantly, what they could imagine the future to be. The second thing that led to my um, writing this book and deciding that it would not be focused just on a specialized subject, but it would be in some ways synthetic or synoptic and talk about the long view of the historical record is my years spent in the Library of Congress when I was it was quite blissful years when there's an abundance of these amazing sources in multiple media. And when the digital revolution came along, the whole premise of the library being comprehensive and universal and providing access equally to all citizens became a real conundrum. We didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. We were very aware that the record was vast. We didn't know what was going to be valuable anymore. And so, you know, that's when these questions about what, what is important to save? What can we afford to lose? That's when they began to loom very large in my mind. And that's when I began the research on the book, which took me, as those of you who've looked at it, very far afield from history, including doing a lot of neuroscience, trying to understand what function memory has to begin with. So that's how I ended up writing the book. Okay. And that's very interesting um, because we, you know, as archaeologists on this call right now, I mean, we've personally generated, two of us are, are cultural resource management archaeologists, uh, Chris and I, um, the two Chris's uh, here in the country, this country. And I mean, we've generated, you know, rooms full of paperwork, like actual paperwork that's turned into digital files, but the paper still has to be stored. And so we're, we're very aware of how much, you know, knowledge we're um, acquiring <laughs> and writing down <laughs> constantly. And that's why, um, you know, that's why it was interesting to, to talk to you about this and about moving forward into the future, because, you know, like we said, as archaeologists, we're constantly recording stuff. It's what we do. If we're not writing it down, then it didn't happen. It didn't exist. And, yeah. and as we as we create this new software for doing this with Michael um, and Codify, that's very much on our minds. How can we do this in a way that um, that records exactly the right information, not too much, not too little, but just the right information so that we can um, we can have what we need moving forward. And then deciding deciding exactly what that means is obviously um, obviously the challenge that we're facing. So yeah, let me just say that I, I was um, I think that there's no way of knowing in advance what actually is going to be useful in the future. Sure. I mean, I think there are certain kinds of particularly scientific data that we generate to answer key questions. I do think we could all agree that the map that we've made of the human genome, you know, that's worth keeping. That's going to be important. Um, the record of nuclear waste storage, that's definitely important to keep. But in terms of the human record, which is so changeable and it's so subjective in some ways, um, the only good advice, and I learned this as a medievalist, um, is to actually record the things that are valuable to you. I know that's not a very specific answer to the question, but there are lots of things as a medievalist I wanted to know about life in Muscovy at the time, mm-hmm. which, you know, those people who could answer the questions weren't even literate. They had no access to recordings. So in all humility, the historians had to figure out how to answer their questions from the scant 
historical record that existed. And we started from the premise that whatever there was, in this case, there were scribal records and a lot of liturgical records. We had to acknowledge that that's what they cared about. I mean, I think that that's, we can't start any place but that. And so I think that's in some ways what a field like archaeology can at least determine is what you in the present think of as important for your own work. And after all, what's going to be you know, needed in the future when people will be using machines we can hardly imagine, using algorithms mm-hmm. which are really unimaginable to mine the data. We can't really tell what, what, how people will use the data that we generate. Right. So you can relax about actually determining precisely what it is that people <laughs> will need in the future. Because the question of what you want to save, you know, because you consider it valuable, is probably hard enough, I imagine, for you all. It is. And I always go back to the example of uh, Chaco Canyon when I, when I visited there for the first time and I saw in the museum that early explorers there back in the, I want to say, late 1800s, if not early 1900s, they would camp, you know, just in the walls of like, um, you know, of the main Pueblo there, Pueblo Bonita. And, and they, uh, they built their fires right where they could see that other fires prehistorically had been built. And now there's no carbon-14 dating that can be done there because they completely destroyed it. Because they didn't know carbon-14 dating was so far away, it wasn't even a concept in their heads that they were destroying this. And I think about that recording archaeological sites that I know are going to be destroyed by development. Um, my thinking is I want to record everything because you're right. I don't know what's going to be useful in the future. Um, and, and I don't even know what's useful uh, to me, what's important to me, because quite frankly, I'm recording someone else's history, right? It's not mine. It's, it's somebody else's. It's Native American. It's, it's you know, colonial. It's, it's uh, settlers, you know, explorers of the West because I'm out here in Nevada or something like that. Um, so that's a, that's a really big issue. And, and you know, I want to go back to the comment you made that you had, you know, in writing this book, you had to go in even into a little bit of neuroscience. I mean, how much does our own psychology really play into this? Because it's got to be a huge problem. Me, as my own example, just moving right now, as I mentioned to you when we had this call a few days ago, that I just moved into a slightly smaller place. And we've actually gotten rid of a lot of stuff and tried to figure out what do we need, what do we don't need. And um, I think as as humans, we have a tendency to just like keep everything. <laughs> just like naturally, we don't want to get rid of it because we see – Everything's important to us. I was talking about getting rid of books, and somebody commented on my post on Facebook, said, I'd rather put an addition on my house than get rid of any of my books. Um, and, and I mean, that's, that's a huge deal, you know, and that's, that's how we think. So where, where did your research into, like, neuroscience come into that, that sort of play or psychology? Um, well, you know, one of the things that strikes me, um, it's commonsensical, but, you know, neuroscientists can actually explain uh, how this works, or at least why it works. You know, memory itself, and you know, in animals, is um, highly conservative. It keeps a lot of stuff, but the stuff that's redundant, it tends to consolidate. You know, the the purpose of memory. I mean, there's DNA memory, there's genetic memory, and its purpose is to teach a creature how to develop into the species that it develops into. And it has enough junk in it. I mean, sorry, it used to be called junk, of course. Now we understand it's valuable, but it has a lot of archaic information that is there in some ways out of sheer, um, well, laziness. You know, it's, it's, la- it's hard to edit things out. They tend to just drift. Mm-hmm. But also it becomes almost by itself something which allows adaptation. So when the environment changes and you need, you know, the... the um, you need to actually adapt to the environment in an animal, an amoeba or a zebra, whoever it is. Um, they have other resources heretofore never tapped, 
which allows them potential to adapt. I mean, this is a gross generalization, but Mm -hmm. in general, we tend to keep certain kinds of things um, that allow us to be adaptable. So, you know, and when we learn, though, that is when animals start to learn, including human beings, most everything, you know, things get laid down in your memory. You develop a model of how the world works, and that's totally, completely, absolutely, and forever unconscious. Mm-hmm. It's laid down in parts of the brain that are completely inaccessible to human consciousness. Thank God, because we would never want to tamper with that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, you know, we do know now that a lot of what humans take in, it, there's a kind of matching process. Um, mm-hmm. That if it's information that is already stored in the brain, it filters it out immediately, like white noise. <laughs> um, and it it pays attention to the things that are new. I mean, incidentally, um, and most importantly, I'd say this is a process that takes place unconsciously most of the time when human beings are asleep, mm-hmm. which means that if you don't sleep, your memory gets extremely discombobulated. Yeah. So there's a reason that we need to cultivate sleep as a habit for forming good memories. But, but it's amazing how much concrete information that is in our memory actually gets kind of generalized. Um, it's not that specific anymore. Um, except in certain instances. So when you made choices about what to keep in your book collection, mm-hmm. um, as an example, and I would say you should definitely get rid of books that you don't use. I right. personally think of them as recycling them. I mean, I give them to libraries to sell mm-hmm. or I give them to the Internet Archive to store and to scan and put online. So, you know, it's not as if you're wasting a book. You could say you're wasting the book by keeping it in storage. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, the things that you choose to get rid of, you actually probably unconsciously or maybe consciously think about what you know you will be using or you want to maintain the option to use in the future. That's all we need to know about memory is we store things um, so that we have a sense of how the world works, and then we acquire information that we think may be useful. Mm-hmm. And when we think about the future, um, it's it's we want to store enough information that, Think, you know, we have something that will help us to make a choice in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so that's why memory is essentially, you know, the content is the past, but it is it serves the function of the future. And I think that's true of you know your library or my household, um, as much as it is archaeological data. Right. That's a uh, that's a really good way of looking at the the recycling of books thing, because I was kind of struggling with that. And I love, I love that thought, because it is going to waste sitting on my shelf if I've already read it, you know, and I'm not going to refer to it later. I could give it to someone else to enjoy. I like that a lot. No, this is all, this is all fantastic. And, and just um, one of the things that, that continues to um, get me up in the morning um, and actually also help me sleep well at night. So thanks for the sleep comment um, <laughs> is, is kind of really thinking about um, both the affordances we now have with um, digital recording, but also the, the grave concerns we have. And that was one of the things that really struck me, um, Abby, both about your book, but also your work generally, which has to do with, the, um, there's a quote in your book that has to do with kind of the the ephemeral digital landscape and, and how we can all become our own digital data managers. So in archaeology, I guess what we're saying is there's a there's a high stake because when, while what, what Chris was describing is that for legal reasons uh, in in most cultural resource management, there are paper records that are generated, um, but more and more, and, and we're, as, as I say, guilty, but also trying to lead, um, there's a, you know, we, we record everything digitally, 
and then we try it. We're trying to put paper in his place and trying to generate paper where it makes sense. Uh, but but there's also a whole lot of concern. I mean, for obvious reasons, not just for uh, a place where you know uh, we're doing an archaeological project that actually destroys all the evidence. Therefore, what we record and how we record it should pervade so that the, there are people in the future that can actually <laughs> um, experience what we got to experience um, doing the archaeological work. But also, I'm wondering if perhaps maybe in the second segment, if we can talk a bit more about about your call for digital literacy, literacy and, and scholarship, or what we like to call digital uh, citizen archivists, um, so that we can figure out ways to do this more personally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of people um, are dependent upon what are essentially consumer technologies for most of their digital life. And, you know, I think, as I point out in the book, most people, maybe not, you know, the people who are listening and the people on the call, but most people are unaware that the technologies they use, you know, Gmail and um, Facebook and these platforms that are quote unquote free are in fact not free at all. And the people who um, commit their often personal data and share them through these platforms, through the miracle of these platforms, which appear to cost nothing. In fact, they exchange control of their own data um, for access um, at n little or no cost to them. So I think people need to be aware of how much some of these um, commercial companies control the data that we own. And frankly, I think we ought to take more control over the data that we produce. You know, and you know, not using Gmail is not necessarily a solution to that, but making sure that you back up all your own stuff and you don't assume that because it's on a commercially, you pay for commercial storage on a cloud, that means that it's a guarantee that the stuff will be there when you want it on the terms that you want it. But the whole question of digital literacy and curating our own digital lives is um, something with very, very broad applications. Um, and is of concern to many. Right, and I think uh, I think one thing as we go to break here that uh, people tend to forget because we say cloud, cloud, cloud all the time. The cloud is actually a room somewhere in a building. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's a place that can be destroyed by a numerous means, whether it's power failures or earthquakes or what have you. Now, cloud means it's distributed. So if one place gets destroyed, maybe not everything got destroyed, but. Um, yeah, as we as we saw from Amazon just this week, a lot of their services went down for a little while, and a lot of websites just simply didn't work. So, yeah, um, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. We'll we'll take a break right now, and we'll come back and talk about a, a little thing. Um, you know, that's just uh, the security of our entire digital future. We'll we'll solve that. All right. Back in a second. Let's face it, the quality of archaeological field photography could really use some improvement. We aim to change this with the Codify Magic Photo Board. This lightweight but incredibly durable board is designed to help you take color-perfect photos of artifacts, features, and sites using almost any camera, even your smartphone. You need to see it to believe it. Engineered from exceptional quality, color-safe, high-pressure laminate, Codify Magic Photo Board is ready for tough field conditions. It's guaranteed to level up your photography. Start taking publication-worthy photos right in the field with the Codify Magic Photo Board. Available now for pre-order, visit codify.com slash APN. That's codifi.com forward slash APN today and get your promo code exclusively for listeners of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Okay, and we're back from the break. And in the last segment, Abby had mentioned the importance of managing your own data and archiving in your own spaces. And uh, we've had some conversations in, in the back chat while we were off on break. And I think that that is an especially important point given recent events. Uh, and Michael, you can comment on this in a second. There's a 500-year mandate for archival data um, with the Library of Congress, and that itself is a great standard. However, it's politically determined and it's also politically uncertain. And so the data that is contained within that 500-year mandate is also politically uncertain and politically determined. And as we've seen recently, huge packages of data have been scrubbed from the record, and we've seen quote-unquote rogue agents scrambling to make that data available in open sources. And we've also seen scientists and just citizen archivists grabbing all the open data they possibly can and making it available in their in their own server spaces or archival spaces. And so uh, I think that, you know, the, the important point that Abby left off the last segment in is especially worth noting. Mm -hmm. Well, well, sure. I mean, this there, this this is a it's a it's a very tangled scheme because um, we just a real quick background. We were we participated with the Park Service and the the National Center for Preservation Technology Training and did a survey of the of the country looking at 3D data and how to implement uh, new new procedures for recording in 3D. Um, but but the reality again is that that. Um, there's no financial mandate for for even doing that at all in the Park Service, and especially now, uh, alluding to what Chris just said. Um, so at the end of the day, you're looking for ways to ways to record in, in in material ways that we understand. And this I really can, this resonates very well for me with uh, with what Abby, what you were saying at the very beginning of, of the of the call, which is we it's hard for us to understand what people will need in the future in order to understand what we're doing now in 2017, um, whether it's research or writing or storytelling or whatever. Um, but 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 I, my concern about this and um, is that we also make decisions and it, decisions continue to be made based on what we understand now and are comfortable with versus even kind of being, being willing to explore or figure out how to make um, data that we don't understand very well preservable and this is the this is the real challenge like we as you know whether whether we're seeing you know state enforcement of of the redaction of climate change data or the repurposing of white house uh, uh, gov or um or even if it's not as nefarious as it may all feel just trying to figure out a way to sustain a digital future so that we can have one is um Again, we're, we're currently talking in this conversation now about um, uh, this is called more of the, the official records that we want to generate as archaeologists and historians and, and researchers. But but again, I would still like us to talk a bit about perhaps some handy tips we can come up with besides <laughs> um, please don't use Facebook as your digital preservation repository um, <laughs> to figure out how to, you know, uh, you know, I have a five-year-old kid. My dad left me uh, a fantastic uh, physical archive of, of photos as a photographer, and I sit here daily as someone who does this for a living, trying to figure out how I best can provide, um, uh, you know, some form of uh, memorial to my to my kid too. Um, 
So anyway, the lot, lots of lots of things clearly on the mind here. Abby? Yeah, let me just um, uh, say a couple of things. First, um, about the issue of the takedown of certain information under the present regime and the 500-year mandate from the Library of the Library of Congress, and I think most significant in this case in terms of the government is the National Archives and Records Administration, known as NARA or the National Archives. You know, to my mind, the the challenge that those organizations have faced are not primarily uh, the ones that um, are getting a lot of attention now, which is this clear, well, clear to many people, the political threat of the new regime. In fact, I think the problems for these organizations began many years ago when, at least two or three decades ago, and that's when I was in the Library of Congress, and I saw what was happening, when there was a widespread um, the beginning of a widespread disinvestment in the public sector period. And that means the archives is chronically underfunded and the Library of Congress is chronically underfunded and the funding keeps going down and down and down. And that's just for the existing record that they have in analog. The um, state of technology in the Library of Congress, the investment in their digital infrastructure is a scandal and people like to blame the previous librarian or somebody for that state but the truth is that it was a, it's in part a very bad budget it's the unwillingness on congress's part to invest in these key infrastructure information infrastructure of the united states which they like to boast you know they support because well thomas jefferson founded the library and we believe in open access free access etc but i think the lie is really in the in the larger public disinvestment so i think one thing that the public can do is to demand more of their members of Congress to fund these institutions. Mm -hmm. And it's not, a pol it's not political. It's not funded this group over, you know, these kind of data over those kind of data. That, I think, is, a, is if anything, a distraction right now for the more funda fundamental economic problem that we don't understand how to, what the value of this information is, and so we discount it in general. Because investing in digital preservation seems like throwing money into a rat hole. And I've heard that term used by a university president who didn't know why they should, you know, their university should be preserving the research data that their faculty get from, you know, NSF, uh, National Science Foundation grants. The disincentives for scholars, scientists, humanists in the university to preserve rather than to create data is another problem. I'd say a structural problem. So I think. From my time serving on the National Science Foundation Blue Ribbon Task Force on economics of digital archiving, the fundamental problems are economic, the paying for um, basically a public good in a market-driven economy. So that was a mouthful, and I will um, – you can find a link to this – to the report of about the economic ta task force, um, which I will share with you. But, I mean, that's, I think, um, a, a pretty serious issue. Um, and then there's the politics, which maybe we know enough about that we can just pass over in silence and, you know, in a prayer, shall we say. Um, but I also but I love this question about what do we do about our family? You know, how do we actually create for our children and grandchildren a record of their own um, sort of extravagantly documented childhoods. I mean, we take photographs and videos of them constantly, and of course we know they do it of themselves incessantly. So how do we actually create some kind of a record of that? Um, how do we take this superabundance of stuff that we create in documentary form and actually 
um, de- try to make it into something a little more scarce. And here I'm talking about editing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember when we had to actually pay a lot of money for film? And if you wanted to take a photograph, you would actually take maybe one or two, you'd bracket the exposure and the focus. And then you'd try to look at, if anything, you would develop it as a, you know, as a negative or a slide, because it actually cost a fair amount of money to create a print. So there was this kind of built-in scarcity, which, shall we say, no longer exists in the digital world. So how many images of our kids and grandkids do we have on our cloud? I mean, I would say the first thing we need to do, and painful as it is, is to actually spend time with our records and edit them. Uh, you know, there are algorithms that these uh, companies like Apple and Google are providing for sorting through our photos. Um, I, I will applaud the day when they develop a consumer, you know, purchasable um, algorithm that will allow us to make our own selections of our family photos and our family trips so that we actually can decide of the 3,000 that we've taken in the past three months, which ones, which 100 will satisfy for a record of the past three months. We can do it. We just can't do it by looking at every image. We need a computer. We need a machine-readable choice. Because machines are going to read these images. That seems like a like a huge problem of uh, education, too, because I don't know how many times I see somebody who's maybe not too computer savvy, maybe not understanding their, their smartphone very well, which is probably half, if not 75% of the people on Facebook since all the kids have gone to Snapchat. But uh, it's... Um, you see them put up a series of pictures about an event. You know, they were at a graduation, they were at something like that, and they put up 50 pictures that they just, bam, dumped it onto Facebook, and maybe only 10 of those are actually halfway decent pictures. They've got pictures with their finger in it, 700 pictures of the same exact thing, and they're just not, they don't seem very good about filtering out what's capable and what, what you should actually delete. <laughs> that's, that's just uh, anecdotal right. evidence right there, but yeah. It, it demands a lot of attention. It does. And, um, and it's easy to say, well, of course, you know, their brains are underdeveloped and they don't know how to pay attention to these things and they don't understand the long-term value of it. But frankly, I think the same problem, I mean, I have the same problem with uh, people my age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, there are, you know, I think that, I think parents and grandparents have the same problem, that we yeah. just, it's a human nature to keep moving forward. Um, and I, you know, I have this, I, I mean, I, I, I came up with this idea while writing the book because I got to a point in finishing the book when I thought, man, this is gloomy. I mean, what are we going to do? <laughs> um, and I, but I also believe that, I mean, ardently believe that technologies are tools that humans create. And they have powers that we don't understand until we start to use them and abuse them. And they abuse us in turn. But over time, we learn to actually corral and to discipline the technologies that we use. And I don't, as a historian, don't believe this is going to happen in our generation, that we become so used to the, the hazards of digital abundance that we began to we begin to actually build almost automatic ways to filter mm-hmm. out this kind of redundant information. But as someone who's you know knows something about the printing revolution and of course the the audio and the AV revolution and even having lived through the television revolution, it took us quite a while. Took each generation, um, actually multiple generations, to understand what how to use those technologies responsibly. 
And so I think that it'll take one or two generations of born digital natives to get to the age when they're 80, and they, they're probably going to live much longer than that. Mm-hmm. And they look back retrospectively, and they begin to understand that they need to be shaping the record and that they need to inculcate in the next several generations, you know, early on growing up, teaching children how to use this technology in a way that makes it more accessible. And mm-hmm. as I said, I also think as consumers, we need to demand more of the companies that we who make these technologies for us. Right. Yeah, I mean, just again, this is absolutely fantastic and um, <clears throat> and still a little bit scary, <laughs> you know? Oh, but, I think uh, it's very scary, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, one thing I, I just want to say, I mean, the, the basically the question is like, I, you know, if, we, if there was one question I could have asked you, um, I've already asked it and, we're, and, we're, and we are talking about it. And that is, you know, what we can do to kind of inspire folks to become their own um, citizen archivists, if you will, and you and you and you and you hit it, which is we need to figure out both technological but also um, kind of human training ways of of editing and and curating and making that a possibility. But one thing I got to say that's uh, that's actually a, um, a very, I, from my perspective, recent meaning just the last couple of years um, um, kind of movement, and um, it's given me a bit bit of hope. Is that I am seeing uh, you know uh, several. Um, instances of, of millennials who actually are interested in this, <laughs> who are getting, who are, who are, you know, we're getting this uh, kind of, kind of digital fatigue happening, mm-hmm. and I see this as an opportunity actually to get us to think a bit more about what matters. Uh, so perhaps I, we would love to hear a bit more thoughts of this because if we if we kind of circle back to what the book represented um, for 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 all of us, I think. You know, mm-hmm. you're taking a look at memory over the very broad terms, and 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 we are having an archaeological conversation here. Um, so, you know, it, looking at um, things that matter uh, from a, you know, uh, you know, community, uh, cultural um, context, personal, family context, you know, professional, all of these different levels, and how we might be able to encourage people to um, to kind of improve. Um, and as you said, kind of be self-edit besides Snapchat, which is the, the actual destruction of the ephemeral moment. <laughs> but also, you know, what, what can be added to, to, to you know, to just increase the, the, the quality and experience of what we're doing? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess until you have kids, you just really, do, you just really don't get this. But, you know. Um, you know, I, I really think that there's something about human nature and the way that we grow, which makes some of this question moot. I, I really do think that. Um, human beings, in, in some ways, the entire fact that we're, you know, culture-based creatures is extraordinary. And there are a lot of people who go through their lives, you know, probably the majority of people who don't even think about the ways that the general culture shapes their personality and the choices that they make, the clothes they wear, the kind of music they love, all these things that they consider extremely personal choices are, in fact, just choices that our particular culture offers to us. I really, I'm not sure that everybody needs to be worried about this, and I don't think everybody can be worried about this, but I think that those who are aware of this issue, those who are involved in building and selling the technologies of recording memories need to be far more responsible to their public obligation to the shared culture that we create. Just as I think, and this is a you know an old story, but it's endlessly repeated. Uh, I just really, I mean, I do believe that 
the, the private companies that make the creative content in the United States and in most market economies, the Sony Pictures, the RKOs, the Universals, it isn't just that they're making commercial product. What they do is they, they sell products which become very intrinsic parts of people's spiritual lives. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the films that we, that we watch as kids, the music that we hear as children that shapes our, our soundscape for the rest of our lives. And it's so profound that, in fact, most people grow up nowadays thinking that music is free and should be free. You know, they don't understand the create, that the creator has to create it. So I really think that, again... We need to make, be far more demanding of the commercial companies that create this content. And not that we need to, and again, we talk about this at some length in this economic task force report because, you know, there were economists there who were thinking about how, how to solve this problem. You know, the market economy that allows us to, that allows Google and Apple and uh, Universal Pictures and things like this to, to make all of this creative content and sell it to us also has, uh, in, an obligation to um, when they are through with the commercial product itself and they no longer wish to ca- uh, pay for the care and feeding of these digital files of movies, that rather than just pulling the plug on them because it's, after all, their private property, that they actually ought to be obligated to offer it to archives and libraries and other public institutions that can preserve this, these cultural memories on behalf of the public and make them freely available. We don't have to take everything, but I think a lot of what we think of as our personal memories, our favorite music and our favorite films and television shows, that somehow we feel owned because in some ways they have shaped us. Mm-hmm. We know we don't want them to disappear, and I think those companies really have an obligation to pass them into the public domain and that we have an obligation as citizens and taxpayers to support the institutions like the Library of Congress or a research library that will take them. You know, that's, that's different than, you know, our family pictures, but it's the same issue that there are really only a couple of um, sectors of the whole community that are concerned, are aware of, of and concerned about culture, but the ones who are really have this special obligation um, to to um, make good on the, on the promise of keeping it. I mean, I would say the same way that I don't know very much about the military and intelligence. I don't know very much about the automobile industry, you know, but, but, there, but I've placed my trust in those organizations to protect me and um, when I'm in driving one of their cars to make sure that it is safe. Mm-hmm. So we have the – it's a very specialized economy. We have to – those of us who care about this have to have special responsibilities, I think, on behalf of others. That's right. I think we all totally agree with that. And uh, as we're just about out of time here, um, Abby, thanks a lot for this. You've given us a lot to think about, and I hope people go check your book out. Um, are we – are you planning on any sort of uh, follow-up to this that you can let us know about uh, or expansion on any of the other ideas in that book that will be out in a little while? Uh, nothing that will be out in a little while, but stay tuned because I am working on – you know, the book was originally, uh, as you can imagine, much, much longer than it is now. And there are a lot of episodes, things that I took out that I'm now developing in other forms. So stay tuned. Awesome. awesome. Well, we'll have you back on to talk about those for sure and maybe periodically as we do this because, as I said, Michael and Chris and I are, are partnering on an application that, that does a lot of this stuff. You're, when you're saying – we need to hold these people responsible. You're you're talking to us too, and we and we feel that burden as well. So, um, 
But thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, thanks it's been for such a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And uh, be sure to check out the uh, links we have in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the Women of Archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, and we're back from the break for our final segment of this show. And again, I'd like to thank uh, Abby Rumsey for joining that uh, for joining this episode. It was a real treat to speak with her and uh, Michael Ashley as well. Um, a lot of great information, a lot of serious, heavy stuff to ponder. Uh, so the app that I'm going to review on this episode is called PlantNet. And it's available on iOS and on the Google Play Store. And I don't know how I ended up doing this, but the last several apps uh, that I've reviewed on this show have been available on uh, both iOS and uh, Google Play or Android. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not intentionally trying to reach <laughs> out of uh, the iOS. Uh, Webby and I were just discussing this, how both of us use iPhones. So <laughs> here for for the most part of Archaeotech, since we've rebooted it, uh, we tend to focus on iOS apps just because that's what we use. But, you know, we're always looking out for more apps. So, you know, feel free to send us a line mm -hmm. and uh, let us know if there's an app that you're thinking about that's, you know, useful for archaeology, even tangentially. Uh, I'm sure you've heard several of the apps uh that we've reviewed here lately, you know, only have, you know, very, very loose affiliation with <laughs> anthropology or archaeology. Uh, so on that note, the app that I'm I'm reviewing this time, PlantNet, is uh, there's an article that I'm linking in the show notes. Um, it's being billed as Shazam for plants. Uh, so you can take a picture of any plant and it will be able to identify it. Now there's limitations. There's serious limitations to this thing. I started to uh, to download it, and before I even started using it, uh, I was reading reviews and reading uh, articles about it and stuff. It there's nothing available for it in North America, to my understanding. Um, they're working on it. Uh, it's a it's a database that you can take pictures of plants, hmm. upload them, and it was developed by a team of four French researchers who were doing work in like Latin America, Asia, um, and North Africa, I believe mm -hmm. there's, there's four regions. I think there's a, there's an area of Europe that it's available in as well. Uh, I could be wrong, but anyhow, uh, it's, it's very limited right now. It's still starting off. Um, but I'm reviewing it because I think that there's a lot of potential, especially for archaeobotany. I've spoken with a few archaeobotanists in, my lifetime who have wanted something like this. So this is something to take note of and just kind of keep on your radar. Again, the app is called PlantNet. Uh, there's going to be links for it in the show notes. Go check it out. Uh, you know, the problem seems to be just a lack of data and a lack of users. Mm -hmm. So it, with more engagement, I think that, that that'll uh, that problem will be improved. Now, one of the other things that I'm not sure of, I tried to figure out 
if there's any sort of moderation or like review for the submissions, I don't know that. So I don't know how accurate the data is. I don't know if there's, you know, problems with misspellings or, you know, inaccuracies and whatnot. So, you know, again, something to just keep your mind on. Um, but I think it's a really neat thing that has a lot of potential, again, with some some applications for archaeology, especially working with, um, you know, Webby, you, you and I have, have done some mm-hmm. loose work with indigenous uh, knowledge and uses of traditional plants and stuff like that. So, you know, I think that that's something that could see a good application there. But uh, yeah, Webby, I'll hand it over to you and uh, we mm-hmm. can hear about your app. Well, I got I can comment on this first. Um, you know what I need? I need a shrub app because there aren't any plants in the Great Basin. I mean, they're plants, <laughs> but <laughs> like, well, there's just like sagebrush and tumbleweed, right? right? So, but anyway, this is really similar to, um, and I think a good. They, it looks like they do things similarly, but there, it's um, it would be a good companion app to Leaf Snap, which I had years ago, and I actually wrote a blog post about probably four years ago, and I just pulled up their website, and they still exist, which is great. But it looks like the um, the plant app it uh, it uses a visual database, so you actually just take a picture of the plant and upload it. And like you said, it looks like people are verifying this, or somehow it says they have visualization software that can kind of identify it. The way Leaf Snap works is um, you have to take the leaf off the tree, or I guess put something behind it if it's a big enough leaf, and it's it wants a pure white background in the back because of what it does is takes a, you take a picture. And then it does a high contrast photo and it turns the leaf black against the white background because you can identify any plant um, based on the lobes and pointiness of its leaves, right? So, and that's how that works. And that's a, that builds also a database across the country. And God, I was using this probably four or five years ago. Their database must be enormous by now. But the problem with leaf snap is you don't always have something white to take a picture of it in the background. You don't always, you don't always have a, a really good thing to way to take that picture but with plant app it looks like you can just take the picture i think if you were really really unsure of what this was you'd use both apps and see if they come to a consensus on you know what yeah. this thing actually is so it's kind of cool though i've had the same the same exact idea for um, projectile points it would take a massive database but basically taking a picture of the point on a contrasting background and then you could get all the measurements you want automatically because um, the app would just do it for you and then tell you, um, you know, this is this point. It, the, the thing you would find that would be interesting is if you took a picture of, say, out here in the West, an Elko Corner Notch, it wouldn't come up and say exclusively, this is an Elko Corner Notch, which, which would be eye-opening for archaeologists. It would say, this is a point that has 25 different names across the whole entire country. <laughs> <laughs> so here's where yeah. you can find it. <laughs> Um, which I think people yeah, need to know. Yeah, same deal in the Southeast. There's so much debate over like localized expressions of yeah. various cultural phases of of projectile points, and you know, even when uh, ceramic technology is introduced, you know, there's localized expressions of that. But for projectile points, it's just one of those things. I feel like every region has basically the same kind of morphology or or like loose range of morphology. Right. But there's so much argument over the name of it because they're like, no, it's a localized expression. Right. Well, the the uh, you know the technology of making of making projectile points is I don't want to say limited, but there I mean there is there is a finite number of ways you can do it. Right. To to hack this point <laughs> yeah. onto something, and, and you know the general progression from spear to atlatl 
to bow and arrow to, you know, um, I guess crossbow, really. Um, not, I don't think Native Americans use crossbows, but um, anyway, you know what I mean. From that progression on, there's only so many ways to half that onto a piece of wood. So even if it were independently invented and it invented it and wasn't just cultural transmission across the landscape, if it were independently invented in 50 different places, the invention would look basically the same. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it would have to, right? <laughs> so it, it might be different time, different um, spans of time. Like you, you see this point morphing into another point, morphing into another point in different areas. You know, you'd have different time periods where that, that idea took hold. It probably wasn't all at the same time, but you know, that's, Anyway, um, we're getting off track. <laughs> I could talk about that for hours. I was just about to say, hey, yeah. uh, we could we could do a whole podcast <laughs> on why projectile points are, are such a strange thing I in know. various regions. I know. We really should, actually. Um, but anyway, uh, that being said, I'm just really irritated that Clovis Point is the only one that has, like, one name across two continents. But in reality, lots of points should. So Yeah. Yeah, it's probably because it, it holds a... It holds a consistent time frame across those two continents. You know, you can see the sort of transfer. Anyway, uh, we could, like you said, we could dive into this. Um, <laughs> I'm throwing plates around, apparently. I'm so angry about it. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that reminds me. I should probably take my medication and lower my blood pressure because um, that's the app I'm going to talk about. It's called <laughs> it's called Round. Um, roundhealth.co is the address. We'll have links in the show notes. And again, uh, another thing Chris and I were talking about before we started this is not an app review show. This is a segment we just decided to do where, you know, it's apps that we use. So if we don't hit Android apps all the time, it's because we don't have an Android device to search those with. Um, and that's another case here with the Round app. As far as I can tell, they only have um, iOS. Um, and I'm sure, but I'm, I think still that this is a good thing to know about because there's got to be Android equivalents or whatever your tablet, whatever you're using. And as long as you know this type of app exists, it might be able to help you. So um, what it is, is uh, it's basically, a, a, it reminds you to take pills, honestly. Um, I mean, if you're a woman, women take pills all the time, you know, for various things, um, <laughs> because they have to. Uh, and, and guys, of course, take pills as well. I try not to take any sort of pills if I can help it. I mean, I'll suffer through a headache and just know that it'll be gone the next day, you know, because mm -hmm. I just will not take something for it. That being said, I had an angiogram a few weeks ago and as a, you know, where they scoped my heart. And as a result, I had to, I have to take just for a couple months, I have to take this, I have to put this plastic nitro patch thing, nitroglycerin patch on my, um, on my chest to, uh, release nitroglycerin into my system to increase the flow of blood. Plus, um, uh, heart, uh, heart blood pressure medication once a day that allows me that, that, expands your blood vessels so it makes them less constrictive and then also um a cholesterol pill so oh plus a, a baby aspirin like an 81 milligram aspirin so i've got to take all those for a few months well i found out the hard way that if you take the nitro if you put the nitro on and then take the um uh the blood pressure medication at the same time you'll get a massive migraine because what it does oh. is it releases all your blood vessels and then shoves a whole bunch of blood through them <laughs> so um and I wasn't told to take these at any certain time of day. The nitro patch I have to take in the morning because it's supposed to be 12 hours on, 12 hours off kind of thing. But, you know, the others I can take any time. So I looked for an app, and this happens to have an Apple Watch app too. So my watch, you can basically set in the entire, um, the exact type of pill it is. So if you go to the doctor or something like that, you can just pull up this app and say, this is exactly what I'm taking and when I'm taking it. And um, 
you can set a window for taking it. Like if I want to take it at seven o'clock in the morning, I want to put the, I set the nitro patch, I think for six and I put a two hour window on it. So between five and seven, it's going to ping me and say, did you take this medication? And all I have to do is tap on my watch, hit, yes, I took it or open up the app on my phone and hit, yes, I took it. And then it'll continuously ping me after it goes outside that window. It'll give me push notifications on my phone like every 15 minutes saying, you better take your medication, better take your medication. <laughs> so, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't think it'd be hard to forget, you know, it's your life, it's your health, but damn, is it hard to forget? Um, and that's why I took some of them all at once because I woke up at like six o'clock in the morning, didn't take anything and it was eight o'clock and I'm like, oh shit. And then I went and took my nitro, took the aspirin and then took the blood pressure medication and then got a massive migraine. Um, oh. so Anyway, um, I know as archaeologists, we can, our lives can be, you know, really discombobulated sometimes, especially if we're in a new setting, we're in a hotel, we're in a, a tent or something like that, and it's hard to keep our lives regular. So apps like this can help keep us, um, can help keep us on track and, and not forgetting those, those things that we have to do that are regular in our lives when we're, when we're overturning our lives in so many other ways. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of value for apps like that that kind of maintain some stability and normalcy as mm -hmm. apps tend to assist us in like increasing our mobility. So, mm -hmm. you know, that sounds like a pretty neat app and, you know, I'm sure I, I could use it at some point or another as well. Yeah, I mean, even if you were using it to take vitamins, you know, and you wanted to just, uh, you know, remember or, or like a, if you're anything you're taking that's like daily or periodic, honestly, you could use it for anything that's got a periodic nature to it. It doesn't have to be medication because you can set in custom stuff. If you're like, I want a Coke Zero every day at 11, then <laughs> you could put that in there. You know, I, I need, need a my... cold brew coffee every five hours, exactly every five hours. Otherwise, I die. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to add coffee to this and add like a, a 30 minute window to it seven times a day just so it goes off and reminds me to drink coffee because like I forget that quite honestly. But anyway. Um, but you could set it for, uh, uh, like if you had an Apple watch and you wanted to put your phone away, or even if your phone's accessible while you're on survey, I don't know how many times I forget to drink water and yeah. as ridiculous as that sounds, you know, you get busy, you get doing survey, you get walking around, you just forget. And before you know it, you've got a headache and you can't figure out why it's cause you're freaking dehydrated. So, you know, set this thing up for every, you know, every 30 minutes or every hour or whatever your minimum is and say, you know, that's your prescription. My prescription is H2O and I need, I need to take water now and just take a couple sips. I think that could be extremely valuable. So, um, you know, and, and think about that for other applications too. It doesn't have to be just for, you know, whatever it says it's for, look at the utility of the application and then say, how can I make this work for my situation and for archeology, span um, and for what I'm doing and for my life. And this is free, so you can't beat it. Nice. All right. And I think yours is free too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And leaf snap is free as well. If anybody wants to check that out. So I think that's all we've got. Um, all we've got for today. I'd love to hear your comments and how you're using these applications or anything else you're using. We say this every time we want people to comment, um, you know, what, uh, what apps are you using out there? What are, please Android users, let us know so we can, <laughs> so we can take a look at them, <laughs> even if it's just on the website and, and maybe do some kind of review about them and, and let other people know. So Chris, you got anything else? Nope. Uh, on that note, I'm going to mosey down the street and uh, go get some more coffee. Nice, nice. I think I'm going to go add uh, add Westworld to this app so I know to watch it when it comes on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, also, so I can go, uh, you know, uh, up my stock in Monsanto. All right, so we're out. Um, Carl, we love you. <laughs> we love you, Carl. 
Um, <laughs> that's that's it for this week. Um, we got some other good shows coming up, some interesting stuff on GIS that we're planning. So uh, uh, hopefully we didn't lose just half of our listeners right there. But uh, please listen to those episodes. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Bye. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. And edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.